uh, starting today and until the end of the year, uh, 1 Timothy, uh, this letter will be our focus. Uh, that means we will be hearing uh, our weekly sermons from this letter. Uh, we will also be studying this letter in all of our community groups. And most importantly, uh, this letter is going to be the catalyst for our congregation as we vision cast for the future. You know, next year marks a very important year for us. Our congregation, we are going to be 30 years old. That means this body is older than some of you. Uh, it also means that this body is half the age of some of you. That means that for an entire generation, in some form or another, this body has worshiped together, we have served together, we have done gospel ministry together. So, this time, this moment, as we embark upon 30 years, is certainly one where we can look back and give thanks, but it is also a season where we can look forward prayerfully discerning God's calling for us. See, this is the reason why we are looking at 1 Timothy, because this letter itself is a charge. In this letter, Paul is charging Timothy, his son in the faith, to care for God's household, the church. In this letter, Paul is charging Timothy He's giving him instructions on how to lead the church forward. With this letter, Paul, he is entrusting the church of Ephesus over to Timothy. And you, can, you have a sense that as this letter is being passed on, so also the baton is being passed on. Leadership is being passed on. The church is about to embark on a new journey, enter into a new phase. You see, if Jesus is the cornerstone of the church and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation according to Ephesians 2.20, now Timothy, representing the second generation of leaders, is now being called to build upon that foundation. But... All is not fine and dandy here. This is not some hopeful graduation ceremony where everyone can't wait to start. No. The church right now, the church in Ephesus, is going through its fair share of issues. There's internal division. There's false teaching everywhere. There's the perversion of the gospel. And there's a shortage of leaders. The church in Ephesus is in shambles. What about Timothy? Well, he's not the strongest candidate by any stretch of the imagination. Timothy is considered by many to be too young, too inexperienced. He also seems to have a very shy personality. Timmy is timid. Timothy was raised in a stable household. 
by his mother and his grandmother. So he seems to have this very shy personality. Timothy is also, if we look in the letter, he's dealing with physical ailments. He's sick. He's not all that well. But most importantly, Timothy, he is not Paul. He's not Paul. Who is Paul? Well, Paul was the church's first missionary. He was an expert in the law. He can reason with the best. Greek philosophers, Jewish leaders. Paul was a strategic church planter. He was an amazing preacher. As to his personality, Paul was valiant. He was zealous. He was a man of conviction. When Paul was a Jew, he was willing to take the lives of Christians. But when he became a Christian, he was willing to give his life for the cause of the gospel. He was a man who lived by conviction. There's this one instance in Acts where Paul, he's being beaten for preaching the gospel. And all he had to do was tell the punisher and those around, all he had to do was say, I am a Roman citizen. That means that he was untouchable. But Paul, he endured it so that he could just stick it to them at the end. Paul was gutsy. And even though the Jews and the Romans hated him, they respected him. And Timothy was no Paul. So you can imagine, as this charge is being issued, and as the church is now being handed over to Timothy, the congregation is questioning. Paul, are you sending us Timothy? Wait, you're passing the mantle on to him? Paul, I don't think you understand the problems that we are having. It's only gotten worse since you left. And you can imagine timid Timothy daily feeling the pressure of this responsibility. And as the church is at this crossroad, it was only inevitable that a spirit of doubt and fear would grip the church while a feeling of inadequacy would cripple young Timothy. In the new iteration of Spider-Man, Far From Home, this is what Peter Parker is going through. The great Iron Man, the forerunner of all things tech, the leader of the Avengers, or the real leader of the Avengers, I should say, Tony Stark himself. He takes Spider-Man under his wing. He cares for him like a son. He mentors him, and he shares all of his technology with him. He passes the mantle onto Spider-Man. Now, spoiler alert, in the last Marvel movie, Iron Man dies. Whoa. I figured if you haven't watched it by now, you probably don't care enough. But Iron Man dies, and Spider-Man now has the responsibility for saving the world. But Spider-Man, throughout this movie, he doesn't feel like he's up to the task. He feels inadequate. He is no Tony Stark. There's this one scene where Spider-Man is on the rooftop. He um, is going through many, many things, and Spider-Man, he is down in the press, and he's constantly reminded of Iron Man. 
He sees Iron Man everywhere, everywhere he looks. All he does is think about Iron Man. And while he misses Iron Man dearly, it also contributes to his feeling of inadequacy. How can I fill his shoes? You know, this feeling of doubt and fear of the future always seems to be the sentiment whenever the forerunner of a movement dies. What is going to happen now that person X is gone? Will this movement continue? What will become of us? Well, Paul, he does seem to answer these questions. He understands the mood. Paul, he senses what's going on. And so with this introduction, in a subtle manner, and, or inexplicitly, he answers these questions. He does so in three ways. This is what he says. First, Paul says this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say Paul, the founder of the Christian faith. He doesn't say Paul, the legendary leader of the movement that will topple the Roman Empire. No, he doesn't say, I am Paul, the Christian Chuck Norris, right? He doesn't say that. He says, I am Paul, an apostle. An apostle is simply one who is sent. One who is sent. See, while Timothy and the church at Ephesus may have had this high view of Paul, Paul says, I am just simply someone who was called and sent. I'm just an instrument. Second, Paul says this, by the command of God our Savior, In other words, Paul, who was an apostle, not by his merit or his experience, but he's saying, I am an apostle by the command of God. And even this charge that he is giving to Timothy, this entrusting that he's doing, this passing on of the mantle, Paul is saying, this is God's command. Third, Paul says this, by Jesus Christ, our hope. In the midst of all the doubt and worrying, in the midst of all the fears of the future, Paul says, our hope, not in a smooth transition, our hope, not in church leadership, our hope, not in church members, but our hope. Christ Jesus. And with these three things, Paul, he begins his charge to Timothy, having full confidence in God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Church, I think this is a really good way to begin vision casting, not just for the new year, but for the new generation ahead. It's a reminder that God will finish what he has started. If Paul is like Iron Man and Timothy like Spider-Man, God, he is the movie writer. He is the movie studio who will see the Marvel Universe continue. And our hope is not in anyone's success or merit. Our hope is not in our congregation's competence or ability, 
but our hope is in Jesus. You see, the gospel message for the Christian and for the church is a hopeful one. It's a message anchored in the past in what Jesus has done on the cross while at the same time being a message of hope, confidently looking forward to completion, consummation, and culmination. If I can summarize, the gospel is this. Jesus has guaranteed your salvation by his work on the cross. And he has given you a taste of it now. But wait until he returns, because it is going to be exponentially better. Whereas Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, while he is in prison, he says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel is a hopeful one. It's a hopeful message for you, and it's a hopeful, hopeful message for the church. But you know, often I find that Christians are more nostalgic than they are hopeful. Christians love the past and rarely anticipate the future with hope. Some of you might know what I mean. You find yourself thinking about the good old days. Maybe it was when you were in youth group, maybe when you were in college fellowship, Maybe it was before you had children, before you were less occupied with the normal and mundane activities of life. Friends, do you catch yourself looking back upon those good old days, wishing you can feel what you felt then and love like you loved then? You know, I hear this a lot, too, when it comes to the church. Whenever people speak about the church, they often hearken back to the good old days of the church. And it doesn't matter what the situation is or was. If the church starts to grow, you hear, oh, it was much better when we were smaller, we were more intimate, it felt like a family. When the church becomes smaller, they say, oh, it was much better when it was bigger because it was better. The past is often rosy and the future is gloomy. For the most part, Christians, when I speak with Christians, they are not hopeful of their sanctification. I can't wait to see what God is going to do in my life. I'm excited knowing that he is molding me and fashioning me into his image. No, Christians are more worried about backsliding. I'm worried as life progresses and I get busier, I'm only going to fade and fall away. In addition, when Christians speak about the future of the church, it always seems so bleak, never hopeful. Now, I don't know if it's, mean, if it's meant to be provocative, but, um, you know, I, I get Christianity Today and all these magazines delivered, and a lot of the think pieces on the future of the church are always so doom and gloom. For instance, Here's an article. It's called Baseball and the Church, America's Pastime. And it compares the church and baseball and how they both seem to be dying. This was written by one Stephen Joe. 
That was me years ago. Friends, the past is a testament to God's faithfulness. And because it is, it should propel us forward in hope and not hold us down in fear. But when we lose hope, or worse, when we place our hope in our own circumstances, dwelling on the past has an adverse effect. Dwelling on the past makes us discontent of the present and hopeless of the future. C.S. Lewis, he talks about this symptom in his book, The Screwtape Letters. He addresses it by speaking about a woman. And this is what he says, quote, the woman is in what may be called the all I want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made or an egg properly boiled or a slice of bread properly toasted. But she never finds any servant or any friend who can do these simple things properly because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatal pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past. A past described by her as the days when you can get good servants, but known to us as the days when her senses were more easily pleased and she had pleasures of other kinds which made her less dependent on those of the table. Meanwhile, the daily disappointment produces daily ill temper. C.S. Lewis saying this, there's this woman who keeps thinking about the past, thinking it was amazing back then. And because of that, she is daily disappointed. She's discontent with her present situation. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes so wisely said, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know, if we can be real for a moment, the church in Ephesus and the church in Corinth, they were messy, sinful churches. And our church, this congregation, we are no better, we are no worse. But whenever Paul or the New Testament authors address the churches, he doesn't call them a harlot or a whore. He says, the bride of Jesus. He calls them the church, the precious church of Jesus, which he died for. There's a scene in Acts 20, 28, where Paul, he is um, commissioning elders over the church of Ephesus. This is after Paul had visited the church, planted the church, raised up leaders, and he's about to leave and he ordains these men, and he says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Friends, how can we not be hopeful 
Jesus purchased the church. He ransomed the church with his own blood. Do you think that Christ, in all of his power, will see this go to waste? As you think about the church, the next 30 years, as you think about your own faith journey, friends, the message is this, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Despite our inadequacies and our fears, be hopeful that Jesus will finish his Let me just end with this uh, story. It's a story from the Bible. It's a time when um, the Israelites, they were uh, taken captive by the Babylonians around uh, 587. The temple was destroyed. They were taken as slaves. About 70 years later, they returned. They returned back to Jerusalem. And with their utmost efforts, they, they build the temple and they build the city walls again. They build this temple the temple in which God's glory dwelt. And they build it and build it. Despite all the op oppositions, they finally get around to seeing this thing through. And on the day when that temple is now being consecrated, it's finally finished. They have this worship service. And the elders who were there, those who've witnessed the first temple, when they see this new temple, they see that it's shabby and it's small. They start to cry. They start to weep because they feel, man, I remember the former temple, but this temple, it doesn't compare, and they start to cry. Well, the word of the Lord comes through two prophets, Haggai and Zerubbabel. And God speaks these words. He says, who dare despise the day of small things? And he starts to correct them. And he says, stop looking back at the past. Look at what I am going to do. And God, he brings his glory down into that small temple and he dwells there, showing forth that I am with you. And this is the word that he says to Haggai. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Friends, he's speaking here of Christ Jesus, and ultimately he's speaking of his church, how he will fulfill these things. I don't know about you, but, yeah, humanly speaking, we are in some sense overcome with fear of the future as we think about our own inadequacies, as we think about our own insecurities, how is it that we should continue? The message is hope. Christ Jesus purchased the church with his blood. I'm not trying to give you hype. I'm trying to give you hope. That God, commanded by 
God commanding Paul, sending Paul, gives us now this hope. So as we spend the next few months thinking about the future of this body, may it be one characterized by hope. As you think upon your own life and your own spiritual journey, however bleak it may seem, may you be filled with hope that Jesus will finish what he has started. Join me at this time.